Welcome to On Belief, a podcast from Victoria University's Emmanuel College in the University of Toronto. I'm your host, Nahid Mustafa. On Belief is a home for conversations about the place of faith in the public sphere, what happens when God meets public life and shapes our culture and our politics. We'll explore the challenging questions about the role of religion in the 21st century and whether it can exist harmoniously alongside the modern ideals of a secular society. Read the news, turn on the TV, or tune into social media, and you'll instantly be surrounded by confusion and anger. We've entered an era of harsh political rhetoric fueled by a kind of fact-free or, as some call it, post-truth worldview. Our politics have become divisive, and it's easy to feel untethered, to feel as though there's no solid moral ground to stand on. The role of faith in all this chaos is typically left for those who live a religious or spiritual life. But for many people, hanging on to faith-based values and spiritual lessons, whether they live a religious life or not, is one way to navigate through the noise and find a moral way forward. For this final episode of On Belief, we've brought together a group of people to talk about their experience of faith and how the values they draw from that background have guided them through conflict and change. My name is Lisa Goldman. I'm a journalist. Now I'm based in in New York, Um, but I lived for many years in Israel. I was based in Tel Aviv, Jaffa, and I reported from around the region. Uh, I worked for Haaretz newspaper, and then I started working as a fixer for a producer and translator for an Italian journalist who was the bureau chief for his paper in the area. And then... um, Around 2010, after writing freelance and working as a fixer and working for a couple of legacy media outlets, um, I, together with uh, some other Israeli journalists, uh, launched a digital magazine called 972. 972 is the um, the dialing code for Israel. It also works for Palestine. And... um, Our idea was to provide grassroots reporting from a progressive point of view. Uh, We launched it as a very um, liberal platform in the sense that it was co- it was co-owned by all the contributors uh, and we understood that we would not be making money out of this we were motivated by idealism um, and if you can hear a little bit of a laugh in my voice that's because I wonder at our naivete sometimes but it actually worked out pretty well and um, we launched with zero funding we've never paid ourselves and we've all come to value the project and it's become a, a widely read um, outlet that um, has Israeli and Palestinian contributors, as well as others, giving um, a very sort of different perspective on what goes on on the ground in the region. So uh, my name is Cheshmak Barman Sims, and I live in Ottawa, Canada. Um, and I currently work for the federal government as a public servant. And prior to this, I was an academic and a university professor. And my research focused largely on the impact of armed conflict on women and the role of women in peace building. My name is Umar Lee. I'm an independent journalist, freelance writer, and podcaster from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I cover a wide variety of topics, all the way from 
American politics, culture, issues of race, Islamophobia, to combat sports. Uh, my name is Emily Lowen, and I come from the Mennonite faith tradition, which is a small sort of offshoot of, of Christianity. We're in the Anabaptist traditions, which um, there's a whole range of Mennonites that go from people who shun all technology and live in communities in Mexico or Bolivia and drive horses and buggies to people like me who work in an in an office and just and go to church on a on a Sunday like you know your average expectations. So I was um, born in Vancouver. Um, I was on my mother's side of the family. I was actually a fourth generation Western Canadian Jew, which is a little bit unusual. Most Canadian Jews of my generation, born in the late '60s and early '70s, are third generation. Um, but my grandparents were born in, in Canada, but we were we were secular. They were sort of my grandparents were quite secular in the sense that um, their parents had emigrated from Eastern Europe and the language they spoke at home was Yiddish, um, but they were not religious. They really embraced Canada. Um, my great grandfather famously remarked that um, his worst day in Canada was better than his happiest day in the old country. Um, and that speaks, I think, to the poverty as well as the anti-Semitism that, um, that they emigrated to escape. Um, they did very well, um, and within three generations, my family went from being you know, impoverished, working-class immigrants to professionals, doctors, lawyers, and so forth. Um, the values that I was taught at home sort of evolved, I think, in a way to my own grandparents' confusion. I mean, we were part of the Jewish community, and we did attend synagogue, but... Um, it was only after the 1967 war um, between Israel and uh, the neighboring countries that there was a sort of a resurgence of Jewish identity politics within the Canadian Jewish community, and that affected my life in a very direct way. Um, my parents suddenly became much more interested in their Jewishness and their Judaism, which they didn't actually know that much about. Um, so they took the step of sending me and my sisters to the only Jewish day school in Vancouver, which was nominally Orthodox. And so we started, um, you know, introducing Friday night blessings um, to the um, family. We had, you know, very sort of big, I have very warm memories of these very um, sort of um, beautiful Friday night dinners. My mother was a, a legendary cook, and she got her great-grandmother, who was from um, Hungary or Central Eastern Europe to teach her all the old recipes and um, I have very vivid memories of warm Friday night dinners with all the traditional foods and the blessings and the songs but we were never particularly dogmatic Jews we did not keep kosher at home for example um, we didn't observe the Sabbath by refraining from answering the phone or from driving or things like that but Jewish tradition and Jewish um, lifestyle and Jewishness and Jewish identity were very important in my family. Um, my own grandparents were much more assimilationist than their, than their children. Um, but um, I think my mother didn't, in the end, like that we were becoming so, at that school, sort of um, tried to imbue us with a, um, a sort of a nationalistic Jew Jewishness that my mother didn't like. Um, so she took us out of the school and sent us to a non to a secular high school so but that sort of uh, influenced 
my life path, the, the, the um, nine years that I spent at that Orthodox elementary school really influenced my life path because the values that I was surrounded by as a Canadian growing up in Western Canada in the 1970s and in, in the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s were very, very liberal. And my values, the values that I absorbed from my family and from my surroundings were, have stayed with me forever. Um, they still influence my worldview. Um, and so even though I decided to move to Israel at the age of 17 for various reasons, including the pursuit of identity, um, in the end, even uh, in the end, my my liberal humanistic values, the ones that I absorbed from my Canadian 1970s environment, um, led me to question the idea of Jewish nationalism, um, Jewish particularism, um, all those things, and influenced the way I define Zionism and my own Jewish identity. So in a way, it all sort of meshed together, and also I find in my early middle age, everything's sort of coming full circle. So I was born into a family um, that was Baha'i and is Baha'i. Um, but it was a very interesting sort of environment because my mother's father was Muslim and my, my father's father had been Jewish. Um, both grandmothers were Baha'is. And so I was born in Iran uh, and lived there until I was nine years old. And so I lived in a society uh, which was very um, singularly religious, as in it was a Muslim-dominated society. But I lived in a Baha'i community, which was the largest religious minority in Iran. Um, but the interaction between those communities um, and the fact that I lived in a multi-religious family with a grandfather and aunts who were practicing Muslims um, and, you know, parents who were Baha'is and then an extended circle of family that was Baha'i and spread around the world serving, um, you know, various communities had a really deep impact on me and the way that I saw the world around me, whether it was, um, you know, social justice, poverty, these were all things that I had been exposed to from a young age and really defined the way that I saw the world around me. So growing up, uh, I very strongly had a sense of faith identity from a young age. And I've always sort of wondered about that because my parents weren't... Um, the kind of people who really pushed religion at home or down our throats or anything like that. Um, and for us, spirituality and our faith beliefs had more to do with basically like who you are as a person and how you conduct yourself. Um, and what was really emphasized was more the principles of the faith, which are universal principles that, you know, people of all faiths subscribe to and people of no faith subscribe to. Um, I just remember always, um, you know, being told about the importance of being truthful and kind and generous and seeing that not just told to us, but sort of embodied in the behavior of my parents and, you know, the extended family that surrounded me. Uh, and growing up in Iran, inevitably, you know, uh, a Muslim society, a Muslim country, Shia country, and then 
you know, what, what came with that, seeing the expressions of piety and religiosity uh, in public and, you know, it, you're sort of surrounded by it in a, in a country like Iran. Um, and so, but it was never something that was conscious. Like I, I grew up and I felt I was a Baha'i and I knew I was a Baha'i, but that came with, you know, I remember, for example, my father telling me that we were all the same, you know, and in order for me to see myself as a Baha'i, I had to also see myself as a Christian and as a Muslim, that I had to res have respect for those faith traditions. And even though I didn't practice the rituals of those faith traditions, the very fact that I was a Baha'i meant that I also had to respect and honor and believe in all the previous revelations that had preceded my faith. Um, and, you know, as far as like what I was saying before about um, conduct being very important. It wasn't just, you know, respect and, and kindness and generosity to other people, but really um, sanctity of life. I remember as a young child, my mother um, telling us not to step on the ants in the front yard because they were God's creatures and we had to value life in general. Um, I remember going to children's classes, Baha'i children's classes, and learning, you know, we're all fruits of one tree and flowers of one garden and the drops of one ocean. And just that whole notion of the oneness of humanity and that we're all children of one creator um, brought to this earth to coexist in peace and harmony and that each of us has responsibility for that, that we're not just... You know, we're responsible for one life and one life only, and that's ours, which means that we are not here to judge others um, or criticize others. But as members of one human family, we're responsible for one another and that we need to take um, that responsibility very seriously and, and try and do what we can to be of service to others and to make a difference. And so these principles were incredibly important um, in our household, and those were the things that were shared with us and that really in got integrated into, I believe, myself um, and my sense of a Baha'i identity, that, you know, when, you, when you're of service to other people, that is a form of worship, that is the greatest form of worship, is to try and make a difference in your life every day, every moment that you can. Yeah, so, you know, I come from, uh, you know, I guess a kind of an interesting family. Uh, my, uh, I was raised primarily by my father's parents. Uh, my, I guess you call it your paternal grandparent, uh, Ivan and Mary. They were, uh, my grandfather was a pipe fitter, World War II veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and my grandmother of the old Southern Baptist homemaker. Um, and I was raised with my two older sisters. My uh, mother, who I was not raised around, I had two younger half-siblings from her. Uh, so I kind of grew up in kind of a quintessential American uh, split home. You know, my my grandmother was the source of religion, and my father, who had, you know, went through difficult times in his younger days, had, had wanted us to grow up in, in, in the church, the Southern Baptist Church, 
and it was pretty much an old school white blue collar working class southern baptist fire and brimstone type of a church and that's the kind of faith instruction that we received uh, growing up you know uh i actually had mostly very positive experiences growing up in the church a lot of good people a lot of good memories i mean obviously there were some things i questioned from a theological perspective there were some things that i questioned on a matter of race you know martin luther king said you know the uh the most segregated place in America is the church on Sunday. Um, so there were things I definitely questioned, but overall I had a positive experience. I converted to Islam at 17 years old as a high school student, like many thousands of people of my generation. Matter of fact, I just interviewed a guy from my podcast the other night saying that he came to Islam after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. And there are many thousands of people that this happened for. Uh, if you look, uh, there were really three big, um, uh, three big bursts of convergence to Islam in the history of America. Uh, one in the late 1960s and in the early 1970s coinciding with black power and black black movements. One in the late 80s or early 90s co coinciding with the autobiography of Malcolm X re-release and socially and political kind of hip hop out of New York. And the third one is post 9-11. And all three of those kind of clusters had unique characteristics. But uh, definitely after reading Malcolm, particularly about the Hajj, I was very uh, attracted to Islam and, and ended up attending a, what they call an introduction to Islam class at the Islamic Center in St. Louis, which is now called Masjid Bilal. And from that point, I took my Shahada in 1992. Yeah, some of the core values of the Mennonite tradition that I grew up in were um, service to others and um, caring for people who are poor or more vulnerable than yourself and um, and trying to, to listen to people outside of, you know, uh, who might be outside of your circle or listening to people whose voices might not be heard by others. At least that was how my congregation focused a lot. Uh, my immediate family was just my mom and dad and my one sister. Uh, we lived in BC, um, a few provinces away from the rest of my family. So we had um, my mom's parents lived on a farm in Manitoba, um, in southern Manitoba, where a lot of Mennonite refugees uh, or and immigrants ended up. And then my dad's family uh, was in in Winnipeg. My whole family is all Mennonites, which is both a, a cultural and a faith tradition. But um, I grew up going to a Mennonite church most of the time, and church and youth events and kids club and that kind of stuff was all part of my church. And those were also a big part of my friend group growing up that a lot of the people I'm still friends with from home today are people that I went to church with. And community, I would say, is also another big value in the Mennonite church. I mean, you can see it in, in the people who live together in community, but you can also see it just in terms of congregations and how um, sharing uh, joys and concerns is a big part of a service on a Sunday, and so hearing from others in your community and and finding ways to care for them is is also a really important part of the traditions. You know, my great grandmother, the one who taught my mother how to cook, and I have very vivid memories of that. Um, you know, she was in her 90s and still very very spry, but. Um, we had a custom of my father going to pick her up from her apartment in a different part of Vancouver, bringing her to our family home for the Friday night dinner. And then after dinner was over, my father would drive her home. 
And of course, according to Orthodox Jewish law, one mustn't drive on the Sabbath. And I came home from my Jewish school and I, I told my mother that, you know, we couldn't drive my great grandmother home, that it was breaking the Sabbath. And, and I, and I, I said, you know, we would be personally responsible for retarding the arrival of the Messiah if we continued to drive my great grandmother home after the Sabbath had begun. And my mother, I remember that she turned around from the chopping board in the kitchen and she was holding a knife in her hand and she said, you tell those rabbis at your school that it would be cruel to leave your great-grandmother alone on the Sabbath. And that is far more un-Jewish than driving on the Sabbath. And so I dutifully went to school and told my rabbi teachers what my mother had said. And they said, well, why can't your great-grandmother sleep at your house? And I trotted back home and I said to my mom, the rabbi said that we should have Grandma Rose sleep in our house on the Sabbath. And she said, listen, your great-grandmother is 92 years old. She needs her own bed and her own home. And she also needs to be around her family. We are not going to put her on the couch, on a lumpy couch, to sleep here for the Sabbath just to satisfy your rabbis. And so this this really, really made me think and, and, and question what are what are values, what are Jewish values. And, you know, if the if Jewish religious law contradicts humane behavior, then then which one should I choose? And and don't forget, you know, when rabbis, when religious figures get hold of kids at a very young age, they really shape their faith. I mean, I believed in God. I believed absolutely that the Messiah would come. I took it all very literally. Um, you know, the Jesuits famously say, give me a child until the age of seven and I will give you the adult. And, and I, you know, I was at that school from the age of four. Um, and so ultimately, I, I, I chose my mother's point of view, that we would have our Friday night dinners and we would sing the blessings and eat the traditional foods and even go to synagogue the following morning. And I, I, I enjoyed going to synagogue. I went regularly, but we would certainly neither leave my great grandmother at home nor force her to sleep on the lumpy couch. Um, and, and so that was my very Canadian Jewish choice. Um, and that, you know, certainly, uh, there were certainly other incidents that I, I remember very vividly, but that's my earliest one. I remember from from very early years, not just hearing my parents talking about these things, but really trying to emulate them and role model them. And there's two incidents that have always really stayed with me. Um, in Yvonne, uh, as you probably know, there was a there was a lot of um, wealth and there was a lot of poverty. As in many societies, the disparity between rich and poor was very pronounced. Um, our family was then fortunate to um, to be able to live a very comfortable life. All that changed with the revolution, but at that time, that was the case. And I remember very often seeing uh, very poor people on the side of the road, often women begging sometimes with their children there with them. I remember going to the grocery store to shop with my mom and seeing women um, trying to get food from what was discarded from the store. And this was very upsetting to my mom, um, who felt that it was just not right that some people should have so much and some should not. And more than once, I remember her um, coming up to people and inviting them to come into the grocery store and to take what they would like um, and ask if she may 
um, offer this as a gift, you know, offer to pay for their groceries. And she did it in such a, like, uh, quiet way so as to not make that person feel uncomfortable. Um, that always stayed with me, that there's little things that we can do. And then there was my father who knew a lot of people and um, would would really, was always looking also, like my mom, for opportunities to make a difference. And one incident that really stands out for me was um, he and I, he was going to go see a friend at one of the ministries. Um, and when we came into the building, there was a woman and she was just distraught. She was crying, hitting herself on the head, um, extremely upset, and there were people trying to escort her out. And my father went up to her and said, mother what's going on why are you so upset and she said i have to take my son out of iran for medical treatment and um he's very very sick but they're not allowing they're not providing me the papers to allow me to take him she didn't say why and he said um this is not right and tell me tell me more like what's going on so she explained the situation a little bit and he said, okay, you come with me, you, you come with me and I'll see what I can do to help you. So she came upstairs with them. He told the other people to leave her be and took her upstairs. And in Iran, usually when you went to meet someone, there would be a couple of chairs outside of the office. And he said, you sit here and, and I'll come out and speak with you. We went inside and the gentleman he was meeting was quite high up in the ministry. And I was with him. They brought tea. We sat down. <laughs> you know how it's like. And uh, through the course of the conversation, my father brought up this, you know, mentioned about this lady and said, this is quite upsetting to me, and is there anything that can be done to help her? And just this act of bringing, bringing this up and, you know, asking, advocating on her behalf led her to being able to get the papers that day to take her son out. And these incidents taught me that, you know, we can't just walk around. We have to be aware of our environment um, and see where there are opportunities to make a difference, small or, or big. Um, so I think this is something that really I carry with me, or I try to, uh, and I try and share that now with my own children. There were issues in my childhood that shaped me that later Islam contextualized for me. And so my uh, uh, activity surrounding those issues, it's a combination. It's a combination of who I am, who I came from for my family, you know, and a combination of, of uh, Islamic teaching. For example, different people are attracted to different things within Islam, right? Uh, this is why I get back to what Islamic Kassim was saying. So you have a lot of people who are growing up and say like a, you know, kind of like a, materialistic uh, uh, America or West in general. And they're attracted to like kind of the spiritual parts of Islam. And they are attracted to, you know, Sufistic understandings um, because they need, uh, they have spiritual needs, right? Uh, and I always say, you know, the, the modern thing is to say I'm spiritual, not religious. And I always say, well, I'm religious and not spiritual. So I was never really attracted to, to that kind of like, you know, Romy type of situation. You know what I'm saying? Um, for me, um, the 
I've always gravitated towards Islam as something that can be a offensive force to rectify problems in society, to to be a, a, a move. My teacher, Sheikh Rahman of the city, used to say, Islam is a movement, so you have to get up and move, move. So that's the kind of understanding I come from, that we, we are proactive. We're out there in the community, and we're trying to, um, you know, enjoy the good, the good and forbid the evil. And we're trying to uh, uh, actively make society a better place. Um, you know, which often, you know, puts me in conflict, I guess, today with some um, of your more modern, uh, your younger uh, Muslim figures at times, you know, because uh, for us being educated, the Muslim knows no fear. Who you fear is who you worship. You know what I'm trying to say? So, uh, uh, you know, kind of the culture, you know, Islamophobia is out there. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I just can't really identify with that. You know what I'm trying to say? Because, um, you know, we were taught to never have physical fear, never to fear anything in this dunya, never to fear any man. And so that's kind of the, that was something I think probably because of my background as a guy from a you know, wrestling and boxing background and, you know, blue collar, North St. Louis County. It was probably something that was attractive to me, even uh, aside from any religious uh, uh, aspects. And people from other backgrounds probably were less attracted to a message like that. My understanding of Islam is constantly evolving. My personal practice and faith is constantly evolving. So it's, it's meant different things at different periods of my life. You know what I'm trying to say? So it's, it's um, just to say about myself, uh, one of the imams here, I was having a private conversation with him, Imam Jalali Qasim, who's a great guy uh, here in St. Louis. And he was saying that, you know, most of your African-American Muslims, uh, uh, and he was being general, but I, I think the point stands, uh, converts are, most of your African-American converts are attracted to uh, a Salafi understanding of Islam, which is more uh, theologically conservative uh, and most of your uh, white converts are attracted to Sufism. Now, I was the exact opposite. Uh, I was a, uh, I was always attracted to, from the early ages of Muslim, to um, uh, obviously to trying to purify myself, try, as our ancestors trying to change the condition of myself, but also to political and uh, social movements uh, emanating from the Muslim community. So I was always studying uh, Muslim um, uh, theorists on politics and society. Um, so at different times, it motivated me in different ways. And of course, post 9-11, as Muslims became the focus of many national conversations and discussions, uh, just being a Muslim and doing anything, whether I was covering professional boxing, became uh, quite the topic of the conversation. So I was heavily involved with covering Ferguson and I grew up in that area, North St. Louis County. And, you know, I was, you know, I got published in a lot of publications and was on a lot of television programs. And I never talked about being a Muslim when I was covering Ferguson. I never mentioned Islam when I was covering Ferguson. It was not something that I mentioned. You know, I wasn't out there until Muslim activists. You know, some Muslim activists came to St. Louis. They got a photo op and they bounced, you know, trying to say that they're in the height of Ferguson. I was never out there like that. I was just a guy who was a Muslim, but that was covering this issue that was that that I had been familiar familiar with, you know, even before being a Muslim. You know, racial division in North St. Louis County. But what happened is, 
the Islamophobes relentlessly attack me. I mean, and I mean relentlessly on radio, on the internet. They relentlessly attacked me during Ferguson. That caused me to more or less have to write a couple of pieces and give a couple of interviews on the role that Muslims had in Ferguson. You know what I'm trying to say? So just being a Muslim and being in public at this period of history, you know, it, 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 it's really not, you're really not allowed to just, uh, to not address these issues. You know what I'm trying to say? You're really, uh, have to, uh, uh, more or less being an ambassador, uh, to the best of your ability, uh, for the Muslim community. Now, did my faith inform me being out there? You know, I have, you know, like I said, I have a very particular worldview, I guess. You know, uh, me and my friends often talk about the difference between the 1990s and today. And so when I was studying Islam with people like Sheikh Ali Tanibi and Jaffa Sheikh Idris in the 1990s, you would not, at least in our circles, you would not run around any Muslims who would say, I'm a progressive, I'm a liberal, or I'm a conservative, or I'm a left, or I'm a right, or anything like that. So we were kind of educated in and developed a worldview that was independent of Western binaries, more or less, um, which post 9-11, that kind of evaporated uh, because of the Islamophobia from the right people very much gravitated to the left. So I just, I kind of think, yeah, I do have a worldview that is not consistent with either the left or the right, which in this, in these times is somewhat uh, unusual, somewhat unique, I would say. Yeah, I think it is, belief and action are that closely tied, I don't think. It at least in the tradition that I grew up in, action is a very big part of it, and that the you know faith without works is dead. I'm not sure if that's a if that's a Mennonite phrase or if that's just a broader Christian phrase, but I remember hearing that and um learning that being you can believe um, i just yeah I remember hearing that you needed to take action on what you believed and that those two things should naturally go together. It was never for, for me, uh, you have to take action on these things or else there was not, it's not like there was no, you're not going to be condemned or you're not going to go to hell if you don't do these things, but it was just that that was the right thing to do. And if you really believed in the, in this faith that you would do those things. Pacifism is one that stands more apart for me um, as part of the specific Mennonite tradition that I don't see in all in all traditions. There, are, it is part of many, um, and so that's one that's sort of, that's been quite important to me. Um, and I do see that in a lot of the work that MCC does as well. That in terms of disaster response, you know, we're providing relief, but we also sort of think about it in a peace-building lens of trying to take the community dynamics into account. And, um, you know, when delivering relief, we, you know, the organization provides some for people who've been displaced, but also the communities hosting them to try to reduce tensions. And that's, I'm sure, something that other organizations think about as well, but um, the incorporating peace-building and um, pacifism into what we do, that would be a, a distinct piece for me that's kept me as part of the Mennonite community. I think I have incorporated pacifism and peace building into my own life, although 
given where I live and um, the context that I'm in, it's not something that comes up on a regular basis because I'm not living in a conflict zone. I'm not in a country that does conscription. So in the most sort of obvious ways, I'm not confronted with dealing with that on a regular basis. But I think it has informed, you know, how I try to deal with other people in conflict when, you know, trying to resolve things more peacefully and um, just in terms of person-to-person conflict. Um, It comes up a lot around Remembrance Day in Canada in that um, our organization has developed these buttons that people can wear uh, in addition to or in place of a poppy that say to remember is to work for peace. And that's always a really interesting time of year for me to wear it and to wear that button and gauge people's reaction to it. And it gets you into a lot of interesting conversations, some of which are, um, you know, really pleasant and some of which are a bit hostile. The line between supporting your country and and being a pacifist, I think, has always been a challenge for Mennonites who were a lot of them were conscientious objectors and some of them were judged pretty harshly for um, abandoning the troops and abandoning their country and surely, you know, said, surely you don't care for, for freedom or for the country if you're not willing to fight for it. But um, they held those beliefs really closely. Um, For me, I think, again, because it's not, it's not something I'm, I'm not called to participate in conflict in the same way that people would have been in the past. It's it's a significantly easier line for me to walk than it would have been then. But I think I try, I think a lot of people's negative reactions to, to pacifism generally is coming from a place of feeling judged often that like, if I, if I say I'm a pacifist, that I'm, you know, believe that I'm better than them. other people who are willing to participate in conflict. And so um, I I try to come at it from a really open perspective of, you know, saying that I understand that people believe differently than me. And, um, and, you know, I try to share um, a bit about what I've learned in as part of my faith growing up and that um, violence was just not was not part of that. It was not seen as as being part of our faith tradition. And so, um, I mean, ultimately I, I think I would believe that's probably the best, the right way to go, go about, um, life is to be a pacifist, but I don't want to, I try not to put that belief on other people, which has usually been helpful. And I also try to think about other people's family and think about it more on a personal level because that's another place where people can feel quite insulted by a pacifist belief is if they have family members who've been um, in the military or who've died in service and I certainly don't want to downplay that or pretend that that's not significant and so acknowledging the painful history of of people participating in the military has been a somewhat helpful way to reduce those tensions. So I feel that my work complements my broader worldview um, in the connections that I see between who I am and what my beliefs are and how those personal uh, beliefs and the value system within which I was raised and have internalized um, impact and define the way I try to conduct my life. 
um, my everyday life. So whether that's in relationship with people around me or the way that I choose um, the work that I do and hopefully the way that I do that work. My beliefs define so much how I live my life or try and live my life. Or it's a work in progress, right? <laughs> so we're never really where we want to be um, in who we want to be. But it's a daily, um, it's a daily work, and it's hard work. So, yeah. So I do believe that my beliefs really impact and shape how I live my life. But I also believe my interactions with the world around me have both challenged my faith and also deepened it. Um, and I think that's the beauty of living in the world that we live in and being open to the experiences around me. Um, I'll share a few examples. I'm always trying to learn about and understand things that are different, you know. So, for example, I'm a person of faith, um, and I believe there's a God. But I'm fascinated by the notion of atheism, and I want to get into the head of someone who doesn't believe there's a God. And by seeking the experience of talking to people who don't believe in a God and engaging in conversations with them and really with an open heart listening to what they have to say, I have found that it's given me not only a perspective on people's rights to have their beliefs, no matter how different those beliefs might be from mine, but I find those conversations have also challenged me to then think about my own beliefs and ask myself, why do I believe those things? And in effect, it's deepened my understanding, um, but it's also helped me to see things, you know, a little bit differently, and I think that's really important. Um, so that's what I mean by that bilateral relationship. Um, yeah, you know, you meet lots of different people in the world, and they may choose to live their lives differently than you do or um, be different than you are in some way. And I feel that's, to me, the, import, the most important thing of my, about my faith is the thing that's at the heart of my faith. And, and maybe some Baha'is wouldn't agree with me on this. <laughs> I think most would. But I am not here to judge others, nor to judge how others live their life. For me, Baha'u'llah's message is to love everyone and to accept everyone. And sometimes that's harder than others, but then that's a spiritual test for me. That's what will help me refine, you know, my spirituality, my soul, to be more accepting, to be more, you know, kind, to be more compassionate. Um, to be more of all of those things that I think we're called upon to be. When when I was the problem, you know, when you're working as a journalist in a in a in a in an area of the world that's sort of a low 
uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Low grade conflict zone, sort of constant conflict, but not a high body count. Not a high body count, and also a very fundamental, you know, injustice right in front of you, which is that, um, you know, there are several million people who are living under a military regime, and they have absolutely no. They don't have any of the fundamental, basic human and civil rights that I take as my birthright. They are denied that, and they are denied those civil and human rights by a regime that's purporting to protect my physical safety and also my identity. And so, you know, as a reporter, I started to, when I first arrived in Israel, I have to say that um, I didn't really, it's very easy not to know something that, that's obvious you know, when you don't want to know it. So I didn't really understand in a visceral way the extent to which the occupation hurt people. And um, it was very, very difficult for me to go out there. And again, it was my Canadian liberal background that made me very open to, very receptive to to understanding that this was a terrible injustice that was that was being committed and, and that I had to report it, that I had to make people aware. I had to go back to my people my, my fellow Jews and tell them, hey, something awful is being done in your name and you need to be aware of this and do something about it, change it. Um, so that, that was um, sort of uh, a futile, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't, I mean, it was a futile effort in a way, not, not completely. I mean, I had the very odd experience at one point of um, my very much estranged father getting in touch with me to tell me that I had changed his mind about Israel, that he'd formerly been totally uncritical, and that after reading my articles, he had changed his mind and was now quite critical. So, and there were other similar incidents. But yeah, that that sort of fundamental liberalness and that, that idea that my mother had conveyed to me about Jewishness um, being partly about reaching out to people around you and making, you know, and and being aware of injustice and, and trumpeting it and, make, you know, amplifying it. And, um, yeah, that absolutely affected the way I worked in the West Bank and in Gaza. Uh, and it affected, and it absolutely um, was behind my decision to get involved with 917 Magazine, for example. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's been sort of a guiding I didn't actually realize it. I wasn't conscious of it. You know, it's just now sort of doing a forensic analysis of my motivations and my choices in life, um, as one does in one's late 40s. And I'm, and I'm thinking, yes, I mean, my decision to, you know, not pursue a career in corporate journalism and to stay with grassroots reporting and to continue to amplify um, the, you know, very, very deep and fundamental injustices of the military occupation in Palestine were absolutely motivated by the way I was raised as a Jew and as a Canadian Jew. Until Donald Trump got elected, which I did not, you know, I'll put it like this. I predicted Donald Trump would win a year ago, and I predicted in Ferguson in 2014 that a Nixonian-like candidate would arise to promise white America to restore law and order. Um, but in the closing weeks and months of the uh, election, I was reading the same polls that everybody else was. And so to me, it looked like uh, Hillary, uh, we got a close victory. Uh, I think on my forecast, I had it a little tighter than most. But at the end, you know, I knew Donald Trump was popular. I knew he'd win my home state of Missouri, but I thought he'd fall a little short. Um, so when he won, it changed the dynamic. 
admit that uh, we have an authoritarian type figure in the White House, and, and he's confirmed that by his cabinet picks. Uh, it meant that we had Islamophobia in the White House. And I've been a critic with Barack Obama and his relations with the Muslim community. And certain, I didn't even vote for Obama in 2012. I, I, I wrote a writing candidate. Um, but we had serious Islamophobia, serious xenophobia, you know, across the board and down Trump in the White House. And we had someone um, who children were fearful of. You know, uh, my daughter goes to elementary school, which is majority Muslim kids and kids from Mexican backgrounds, you know, down in Texas, uh, near one of the largest uh, mosques in America. And um, children were frightened by the prospect of Donald Trump. Uh, children were not frightened by the prospect of John McCain or Mitt Romney or Bob Dole. You know, this uh, Donald Trump representing something new on the American landscape. And because I have, you know, I've been able to successfully talk about a lot of issues. I have a core readership. I have a core following. Um, and I approach issues from a, from a unique perspective. And I, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I, I thought that the perspective that I bring uh, can be of some value in Washington, D.C. And the perspective I bring is kind of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, like I said before, I don't fit into the traditional left-right uh, uh, dynamic of American and Western politics, even though I almost always vote for Democratic candidates. Uh, I um, come from a Muslim background, so I uh, issues related to the Muslim community are very um, important to me. Although I may not cover those issues in the exact same way, maybe a lot of your uh, hashtaggers and, you know, kind of your younger uh, Muslim writers and activists will. And, you know, I come from a blue-collar working-class background when, when they speak of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Rust Belt or the Bible Belt or the white working class. That's exactly the, the type of background I come from. And I also come from a racially mixed family. So uh, a lot of the, the different parts of my personal life I view are um, uh, negatively affected by the administration of Donald Trump. And I want to be there firsthand to be a witness. And to convey what I'm seeing and to bring that back to my readers and listeners uh, throughout the United States of America. So that's how you look at it. You have to sacrifice for telling the truth. You have to sacrifice for conveying the message. You have to do that because I have no doubt that once I'm in D.C. and I'm covering the um, uh, uh, the goings on in D.C. and you know I'm appearing at more and more events that uh, um, I will be a, a, a target of uh, Islamophobe media types, Islamophobe inch for being a Muslim. I have no doubt about that. So uh, I guess it's just a par for the course. Your political views can evolve, but they'll, they'll mostly evolve based on your, on your fundamental values, right? So if your fundamental value is that, that keeping, a community together, keeping a community together is the highest aspiration, then you'll probably say, you know, you might say that treating others who are not a part of your community badly in order to maintain your community is a necessary evil. But if you were raised to believe that all people are equal, and yes, community is important, but you can't protect your own at the expense of others, then when you go into a place where your own community is being 
protected at the expense of others. Ultimately, as much as you love that community, and I really loved when I first arrived in Israel, I was very happy there. Ultimately, you know, you're not going to feel comfortable in your own skin unless you acknowledge that your fundamental values are being violated in your name and that you have to take a stand. For me, so much of the values that I have in the work that I do come from my faith that I don't think, I think some really beautiful things can happen in the world when people are willing to take what they believe and take action on that in a public way. That it it doesn't have to be about converting people. It doesn't have to be about making them believe what you believe. But when my faith becomes part of public life, it means I feel compelled to to listen to other people. It means I feel compelled to to help people who are in difficult circumstances or to welcome people in um into into Canada, into into my life just sort of generally. And so I I would have a hard time saying that my my religious values shouldn't be part of public life because I think for me anyway that is you're taking away something really important and some really good values and some really important drivers of change. From our perspective, from the Baha'i perspective and the way that that um, that teaching was sort of passed down to me was, of course, cultivating the spirit is an incredibly important part of having a spiritual life. Um, it's sort of like having um, your electrical, you know, <laughs> being tuned into the electrical socket in the wall and that the spirit needs prayer the spirit needs fasting the spirit like these spiritual laws that we're given are there to really nurture the spirit and cultivate the spirit but that is not sufficient in and of itself the whole purpose of cultivating that spirit and and you know uh, nurturing the soul is for that soul and that spirit to have more capacity to make a difference. So it's not just good enough to sit in our room and pray, you know, for hours on end. Um, if that spiritual life doesn't manifest itself in the acts of service, and the two of them are very, very much intertwined. Um, as we serve others, there's a spiritual um, power that's released and, and there's spiritual gifts um, that we feel, you know, and as we cultivate our spirit, we're more capable of being of service to others because when we pray, when we read our sacred writings, um, these are the daily reminders for us of what the purpose of life is. Well, that's it for this final episode of On Belief. Thank you to our guests for sharing their thoughts. Lisa Goldman in New York, Cheshmak Farhuman Sims in Ottawa, Omar Lee in St. Louis, and Emily Lowen in Winnipeg. On Belief is a production of Emmanuel College of Victoria University in the University of Toronto. I'm Nahid Mustafa. Thank you for listening. Thank you.